welcome to Everything True Detective, our podcast on True Detective. My name is Justin Blizzard. I'm here with Keith Krepko, and uh, we will no longer be talking about this pile of wet laundry that is True Detective. The podcast is over. Uh, Thanks for listening. Once you're listening to this, I will have scrubbed all mention of True Detective from anything we've ever done. Uh, and eventually this very episode itself will be deleted and taken from the internet forever because this show is terrible. Speak for yourself, bub. All right. Well, let's get let's get into it. We're going to talk about the show and I think the format will just stick to um, until the show gives us something different because it's so disjointed at this point, I feel like is we'll just um, we'll talk about each character separately, right? All four main characters. And throughout that, we'll work in the stuff from the episode, what happens to them. And then we'll finish by talking about stuff. That impressions. Doesn't, yeah, impressions, whatever doesn't fit into those categories. So this show, this second episode, Night Finds You, opens with... Um, Vince Vaughn. Vince Vaughn. Frank. Frank. Uh, it opens to Frank uh, recalling some terrible memories from his childhood. One terrible memory. One terrible memory in bed early in the morning. Poorly delivered by Vince Vaughn once again. Uh, I mean, what did you make of the scene? I mean, I'm going to say Vince Vaughn is trying. And and, I, okay, well, let me say this. Every single thing I talk about on this podcast, just assume that I hate what I'm talking about. And if I don't, I will be sure to say so. <laughs> if I bring up anything on this podcast for this episode number two, I, it's because I did not like it. Unless I specifically say I like this thing. All right. <laughs> just some <laughs> clarification for the listener. Good. Um, yes, Vince Vaughn is definitely trying. Yeah, so I mean, look, he's he's trying, and I've I've read some people say, so I agree. I like his presence. I like Vince Vaughn as a person. I think he's miscast. I don't think he can pull this dialogue off. Absolutely, and I feel sorry for him. So I'm not reveling in the terrible monologue like some people are reveling. Um, but I do have to agree that yeah, it was a very poorly yeah. i'm not reveling in the terrible monologue i th- and i think he could pull it off if the tone was just changed a little bit i, I think now well you know what maybe that's not true <laughs> because i don't think the tone of this monologue needed to be changed he was just not good with it but i feel like if his if the tone of his character in the whole first episode had been changed and he was the somewhat vince vonny jokey guy that he always is maybe a a little bit more threatening than that but in in, in its own way the jokiness is threatening mm-hmm. when you know how powerful this guy is right i feel like if we had only seen that side of him for the first episode this moment would have been maybe a lot more poignant to may, and maybe to the point of where you could look past how poorly delivered it is i want to see him as the leader of the news team in Anchorman, transposed into here. <laughs> right. That's who I want him to be. Right. Screaming about Dorothy Mantooth. <laughs> right. Now, I, I feel like 
um, with that, I guess here's the other thing. With that monologue, he's kind of set up to fail because I feel like, didn't you know? Didn't you know there's going to be a dead rat at the end of this story? Even before he started talking about rats, <laughs> right? You knew this right. was going some deep, dark place with a violent twist where it's like, he was six. What'd you do? Did you cry all night? It's like, no, I beat that rat to... I beat it into goo. Lick, yeah, beat into goo. Yeah. And I just feel like if you didn't know that a rat was going to be beat into goo as soon as a rat popped up in the story, then you're not watching the the, the show with your eyes wide open and see what Pizzolatto is doing. And that's what I was trying to say about the first episode where... You have all of the, the you have the scene where Colin Farrell shows up to beat the reporter. You have all of these elements leading up to this terrible thing, but that's not enough. It has to be even more terrible exactly. by having someone shooting up heroin in the alley next to the apartment. You know what I mean? It's just it's like right. it's just like every you should know at this point everything that is introduced is going to be taken down the absolute worst path that could be right. The most depressing, darkest alley it could be taken down. Right. But I did want to say uh, props to Frank's wife for listening to that numbnuts monologue <laughs> at like 4 a.m. for like 20 minutes. You know what I mean? Like she was emotional too. She was she was really. That's listening. what I'm saying. Like like big big ups. Whatever her character's name is. Like she's she's in it for the long haul, right? She really loves this guy. <laughs> listening to him talk about some stupid rat at four o'clock in the morning and like a paper mache world and how he thinks it's all fake. <laughs> you know what I mean? What if I want to see a cut scene to them in the morning and she's like, you know, just thanks for opening up to me. And he's like, what are you talking about? And he's just like, sleep talking. <laughs> he doesn't even remember anything. Yeah. Um, this scene but that scene did introduce, uh, or not introduce. I want to submit uh, a contestant to too gratuitous, not gratuitous enough, or just right. Okay. And I'm submitting the slow zoom ins on Vince Vaughn's face as he's supposed to be saying something poignant, which happens twice in this episode. I. I accept that submission. I think a lot of people are probably going to think you're going for the uh, blown off wiener reveal in this episode. I have no issue with that. I have no issue with that. I think I think this is a better submission, and I have to, I have to fall on the side of too gratuitous. Yeah, absolutely. It's way too gratuitous. It's way. It's way too. And and that's the thing that I feel like everything in the first two episodes is straining. The writing is straining, the directing is straining, and it's evident. Like you can you can see the seams. I feel like that might be <laughs> I feel like that might be Justin Lin's direction more than anything, right? Because you think about it, he's used to directing for like a fast and furious audience, right? So he's thinking like maybe these guys aren't gonna get it. Let me slowly zoom in on his face so they know this is very meaningful. Right. Not to uh, demean the Fast and Furious obvious well, audience too, late. too much. <laughs> um, anything? At, what, what else happened? For, and that was pretty much it for Frank, right? The rest of Frank is like, I'm out of money, or I lost all my money, right? right yeah, and he's going to get his money back. So you know, Casper, with Casper's death, 
he loses his investment stake in this light rail deal. Right. And now he's being offered a way back in for eight million, seven, seven, mi- seven million, <clears throat> which is, uh, you know, he, he basically needs to start from scratch. Yeah. And so now, now we're going to see Vince Vaughn or Frank in desperation mode, kind of scratch together, see what he can do. Yeah. And, um, he seems to be getting more violent as the, some, as the um, episode goes on, it's he seems to be going straight, and now you're starting to see these threats. Right, mm-hmm. he's threatening people, um, and, uh, and I think we're we're building to him revealing oh, his right, true because nature. Because he um, sets up the the beatdown of the uh, whatever that guy is, a bookie or something. Yep. Yeah. Yep. The the, the bookie, and he ends up um, uh, threatening Ray. Right, um, but I thought that that I, that and, and I thought that the scene with the bookie, I think that's the Vince Vaughn you need throughout the rest of the episode. Right, you need the one yeah. who's like he's he's friendly but threatening at the same time. Right. Instead, he's just this like meek. Like we're supposed to think that this guy is like undercover running this town when he's this total just like meek. Like pushover is right. what he seems like. Well, yeah, and and you have him introduced in this bar in red, and you're like, right, he's the devil. Right. And then his very next line after our opening in the first episode was, "Behold, what was once a man." And you're like, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't have a high view of himself. There, he's just <laughs> calling himself out. And so I do feel like, yeah, he. I think now we're we're going to start to see him asserting himself more over the next. That's my hope, at least. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we're going to get to see him be bad. But yeah, I mean, as as he's introduced now, it's this awkward, weird, like, he's kind of concerned about your family and how they're doing and blah, blah, blah. And it's yeah. kind of, it's it's a weird middle ground where Maybe he's not. Maybe he wants uh, Ray to be like a sperm donor, right? <laughs> right? Because he's. They're doing in vitro. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Maybe that's why he's asking him so much about it. Maybe. Hey, tell me about your family history there, right? <laughs> Stop drinking for a second. <laughs> okay, let's move on to Paul, who is now obviously like a closeted homosexual, right? Like it's there's no question about there's it. There's no at this question. Point. Okay. Uh which which I hope Nick Pizzolato realizes and in episode three. We get him kissing a dude <laughs> because I don't want two more episodes of like yearning looks oh, right. out his right, window right. Yeah. at John. Right. Is this, does Nick Pitzlow think he's being subtle? Exactly. That's the question that Paul is going to answer over the next couple episodes. Well, that's the one that Paul's going to answer next episode. I right. feel like this is yeah. eight episodes. And if he hasn't just come out that's and true. be like, yeah. and be like, Paul, you need to deal with the fact that you're, Gay, yeah. Um, that that will be another hilarious entry into this season <laughs> of Nick Pizzolato being like, "Oh, what's his secret? Yeah, what's his secret?" All right. So Paul's got a couple of big scenes in this episode. The first one is the totally bizarre, out of left field, um, Oedipal com- complex mother that he has, who's like simultaneously hitting on him 
she's might be one of the most confused characters I've ever seen in television. She's like right. hitting on her son. She calls somebody a scamp. And then like in the very next, she calls him a scamp. Right. And then in like the very next sentence calls somebody a, a mother effer. It just is like, this woman is all over the place. And maybe, right. maybe that's the point that is that she's unstable or whatever, but it just, it was, it's such a weird scene. And I think it, speaks more to my larger issue with the episode with these first two episodes as a whole is that the the editing is so strange because there's a lot of dissolves there's a lot of dissolve from scene to mm-hmm, scene mm-hmm. and it kind of gives it like a i feel like a dreamlike quality almost mm-hmm. but it also really obscures the timeline mm-hmm. and it's like i'm really unsure of what is happening when because pretty much everything is like every scene is ending in a place that doesn't feel like a natural ending for the scene. And it ends by slowly fading into the next scene. It just is like, you know, let's work on our transitions a little bit here. Well, and, and look, I, I'm totally behind dealing with the show that's there, but I do feel like true detective is about atmosphere. And this show is not this season. I should say it's not creating an atmosphere that I can fall into in right. the way that I could. In, and again, this is this is it in probably comparison to season one. But there was an atmosphere in how things were composed and shot and edited. And the timeline was wonky in that one, right? You mm-hmm. are flashing forward and back. Right. And then you are catching up to present day and moving forward. Like it is doing interesting things in that, and you're you're able to create more of those dreamlike feelings and scenarios, and especially with the crime scenes that they find, it's very haunting. Yeah. In the first season, whereas this one, it's just dark. It's just dark with dissolves, and there's it's lacking a cinematic like stamp. Um, I feel like in these first two episodes. And this one in particular, um, to really create that atmosphere of conspiracy and dread and occult and darkness, this is just kind of laying it out there for you. You yeah. know, this guy's a raven head. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. There he is. What did so what did you what what did you think about the scene with his mom? Like are are we gaining a lot of insight on his character from that, or is it like no, I'm thinking this woman wants him to stay in his old room. Yeah. Really bad. She's right. like, we'll watch Clint Eastwood movies when he's no, we'll play card games. <laughs> just stay in your old room. Um, and it's just, a, it just, to me, that character brought up more questions than answers. And she doesn't seem important enough to go back to. Like, I don't think we're going to have mm-hmm. too many more episodes of his mom. Right. Which made me think, like, why why would I care about what she brought in this scene? Yeah. There's nothing really there that I'm that I'm interested in. I think maybe too, because like Paul is so like angst driven and scarred and wounded that I'm like, reveal more about him. she's not revealing more about that. Right. She's just a weird Right. So weird. It just, it just is another dark, depressing alley to go down. That's like 
Paul's going to visit his mom. Let's make her literally the worst mom ever, right? Right. She's going to simultaneously badmouth everyone that he knows and try and sleep with him, even though it's her own son. It just is like, it feels like there's no rhyme or reason to it. And I know that there is a lot of buildup in the interviews before the season about the Oedipus Rex connections. Mm -hmm. But this uh, does not feel like an Oedipus Rex connection at all. It just feels like a weird aside. Yeah, just like... uh Another nod. Right. It's not even homage. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. The other big scene that Paul has is with his girlfriend where they have a, a blowout. Where, once again, the only thing revealed about Paul is that he doesn't want to reveal anything. He's not a good communicator. Right? <laughs> He's certainly not. Yeah, and he most definitely does not want to talk about Black Mountain, all right? Hey, so stop Justin, asking. Stop. <laughs> and do no. not talk about the desert <laughs> right. or Black Mountain. <laughs> yeah. um, my, my favorite line from that was where he's just like, this isn't me. This isn't me. This is you. This isn't me. Right. He keeps like repeating it like right. over and over as he's walking out the door. Yeah. And I just wanted to be like, what is that even mean? What are you right. saying? Yeah. Like... I, I, that scene felt weird to me. Yeah. Anyway. My favorite line from that scene was the, was when she's asking him about something and Black he says, Mountain? no, 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 it, it was, I guess it was the Kurt investigation that he's on and he says, special detail, special investigator. And it's such like a childish response. And I feel like it could have so naturally been followed up by, a special job for a special guy. Like as he's pointing to himself, he's like, I'm that special guy. They want me to do it. Someone <laughs> thinks I'm special. <laughs> right. I need to go help them. <laughs> yeah. So, well, he does, he does seem childish, right? I mean, that's, that's the one thing where his darkness and his angst feels like, it either could come from some just horror. I was raised in a box for four years. Oh, 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 you mean he was like locked in a room where a rat started eating his finger? Yeah. Oh, no, wait. That's the other guy in this show. <laughs> right. Or, or it's like, you know, I always asked for this toy and they never got me that toy. Right. You know, like he does seem kind of belligerent. Right, in and I way. mean, obviously, terrible things has that happened to him because his body is covered in scars. There's things he don't want, to, he doesn't want to talk about. Right, but but he's but he's conveying it in a way that's kind of like more whiny, <laughs> I feel, right? The, the, the yeah, it, it really doesn't make a lot of sense because it's like it seems like he's in a relationship with this woman. Like, isn't that the person that you should be? Like we see Frank doing that exact exact thing, right? Like he's confiding in his wife these deep, dark memories that he wouldn't share with anybody else. And then we get Paul, who's just kind of being a brat and refusing to accept any sort of responsibility for the situation that he is very obviously creating, despite him saying, this isn't me. It's like, yeah, well, you know what? It, it, is exactly you. Right. Fr- right. From the way that he, and, and look, that's that again, I get it. That's part of the character. Right. right. And, and, um, you know, he has no self-awareness. 
obviously he's gay and he doesn't want to admit it. Right. But in the way that he is acting from the beginning of that scene where he's packing his clothes and she brings up the article about, you know, the accusation or whatever uh-huh. with the Hollywood starlet to the moment that he's leaving going, this isn't me. This isn't me. I'm like, this is not how anybody talks or, you know, conveys right. information at all. I mean, he's not even conveying basic information of, oh, that accusation. Funny story, right? It makes me think, how did anybody get in a relationship with him? You know? Right. This guy yeah. is the platonic wet laundry character. <laughs> right. You know, where you're like, geez, what a um a drag. Um now having said that, I can't wait to get to the end because I still do love the show. <laughs> love the season mm-hmm. for all the reasons that I think you you hate it. Yeah. Um so I don't want to sound like I'm all the way down like you. Like it's not that what I'm talking about I hate. But in this situation, I don't see how you can't just open eyes with this series season. It's terrible. It's it's terrible, but it is so bad. It's good for me. I am, I'm enjoying the badness. whatever benefit of the doubt I gave Nick Pizzolatto and this series after the first season, and that benefit of the doubt was taken from the tight grasp of my hand. I absolutely did not want to give it, but I did. I am now taking it away. It's relinquished. It has been been exploded. I like the idea that you're taking it from yourself too. Your right hand is holding on your left hands, pulling, prying it out. Throwing it out of the window and spitting. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about uh, Annie. She, she has a couple scenes. So she goes to visit, Casper's psychiatrist with Ray, right? Oh, she's in the um she's in the autopsy room looking at the corpse. Nothing happens there particularly, I don't believe. But she has a big um well, I guess her big scene or her first big scene was she's riding in the car with Ray, right? And her and Ray start exchanging sort of life philosophies as obtusely as possible, mm-hmm. I might add, in a car scene that looks terrible. It like does. It just looks it really looks, fake. It looks projected. Right. The backgrounds look Which projected. strange, again, because you're dealing with a guy who just did two big blockbuster car movies and a series that just had great car scenes, right? That was the moment that I looked over at my wife and I was like, Justin Lin just took the donation for the second episode <laughs> and went on vacation with it, you know, yeah. because there is nothing. I, I just wanted to be like, you know, stick a camera on the the door light. See what happens. Right. Stick it in the AC vent mm-hmm. and film from there. Yeah. Who knows? Try something. Yeah. So, uh, Antigone explains her knife collection slash obsession as a way to survive in a world dominated by men, more or less, which I'm fine with. I think that's a good 
justification. For yeah, just five I think knives. it's a good. I think it's an interesting um, thing to explore, especially as a female police officer. Um, I just don't like her character. Like, I don't. And I last week I said that I think her. I think that she was. I said somewhat jokingly that I think her character was written as a man and arbitrarily changed to a woman to answer to critics. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't truly believe that she was written as a man and changed. Obviously, I just think that Nick Pizzolatto only knows how to write one character, and it's this very. Uh, Pulpy. Yeah, pulpy, you know, um, what's the word? It's just this very abbreviated macho male character, and that's how he's written Annie. Right. And she just is a woman just to answer. the. I mean, if anything, that's what this second episode confirmed for me. It's that Pizzolatto is actively trying to silence all of his critics with this season. So he has the strong female character. He has a gay character, right? He's getting rid of the any crutches he might have used in the first season, right? He's writing. He's not plagiarizing anymore, which is painfully obvious now in the dialogue and in any of the jokes and the philosophies or whatever. It just is like. I think Ray had a few no, one-liners no. that. Ray had no, zero one-liners that were any good. Oh, thanks zero. For, thanks for saying me straight on that. Yes, and I'm and I to address the previous season. Everyone loved Marty's line about "You're the Michael Jordan of being a son of a bitch." Not a good line. That line's not funny. I'm taking that one back. Everyone who wow. thinks that line is good and it's funny, listen up. Justin, it's not. That line stinks. It's not clever at all. It doesn't even make any sense. You're the Michael Jordan of being a son of a bitch. It makes no sense. You know, what's kind of funny is, I mean, kind of common thought is that Michael Jordan is kind of a son of a bitch. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it is on multiple levels. You could say it's redundant. Nick Pizzolatto is working on none of those multiple levels. Nick Pizzolatto has one level. Pulpy male macho man that in no way involves Michael Jordan or basketball. They're not related at all. It just is a line that sounds clever, but it's not. I, I wasn't going to bring this up. I Did you see there was an uh, interview with Taylor Kitsch? No. On, ooh, what, what website was I on? I don't think it was on um, Daily Beast, I think. Uh-huh. And I read that interview, and when he was asked, <laughs> bless you, how Thank he you. got the part, he talked about Nick Pizzolatto, like, inviting him to come talk about the second season or whatever. He's like, so I drove up to where he lives in California and met him at a dive bar, and we spent eight hours. To, and I was just like, of course he's at a dive bar. Yeah. Like, he's, you know, he is the guy at the dive bar, like, I'm surrounded by characters. <laughs> this is great. You know? Right, yeah. Let me knock it back with some of these Salt real of the men. earth, yeah. Yeah. And uh, that that made me be like, yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. 
So before we move on to Ray and his one-liners, which I will ask you about, let's continue with Annie. Okay. Um, so I, I did want to say, if Nick Pizzolatto is actively trying to answer his critics by having a strong female character, <laughs> he's either like completely tone deaf or has a lot of balls to make that female character like a potential abuse victim who is obsessed with being potentially being dominated by males in a sexual fantasy, right? That seems like a really intense and kind of strange place to take it. My, my wife thought the, pornography she was watching was specifically do you think that it was specifically showing any any act do you think she was just watching two people have sex or do you think it was showing like i couldn't yeah i couldn't really tell if it was showing a specific act but i know that some of the stuff was like bondage stuff right because there were bondage oh yeah images on there but in terms of what she actually started watching you know, it's all blurred or whatever. You couldn't really tell. It's like blurred and shoved into a corner of the screen. So it's just kind of like. I think, I think somebody made a reference to it, but I thought, and they didn't really dig into it, but I was like, I do like how on True Detective, they will show you a blown off penis area, <laughs> right? But pornography will get the tasteful blur <laughs> around the edges. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like. Yeah. Hey guys, we got standards here. All right. People want to yeah. see that area blown off, but uh yeah. let's pull it back over here. Right. But it's and it's like and it, but even and even in that portrayal of Annie in the scene, it's like you could put a guy in that scene doing the of exact course. same things that she's doing, and it would seem to- totally normal. You know, she's sitting there uh completely emotionless, she's drinking whiskey straight up. It just is like this is you've literally written three other versions of this exact same character in this episode. This just happens to be a female, which in some sense, okay, that's fine. I guess maybe we shouldn't discriminate between the two, but at the same time, it just feels like it still feels like he has no idea how to write women. He's just writing it how he would write, uh, Ray, right? I'm calling it. These are all different, personality types within oh, one serial prison. killer's head it's like uh, what was that john cusack movie yeah um <laughs> oh man it's on the tip of my tongue is it 12 something there's a number no. in the title right no invisible i was gonna say something like va- it's not vacancy but um anyway who knows yeah who knows we'll, we'll go on i'll check uh really quick uh, another this may be my favorite moment from the episode and I noticed it the first time it happened, but it was so quick. And I was also trying to focus on, you know, the episode kept moving forward. And then I realized what it was the second time I watched it. When they're interviewing the psychiatrist, Annie looks at a rock that's on his desk. Yeah. That looks like a vagina. Right. <laughs> it's like, what? Why is that there? Yeah, it's, it's there because of that. Right. Why, why does it have to be there for any other reason? Um, and then she has this line with the psychiatrist. 
And this is another where it just feels like he's hitting it on the head too much. She says five kids uh, speaking about her family and her father growing up. Identity. Identity. That's it. Five kids living there when I grew up. Two are in jail and two committed suicide. How's that for social theory? And then the psychiatrist, who is supposed to be a smart person, right? This is a psychiatrist. He says, and the fifth. And it's like, who do you think you've been talking to this whole time? What do you mean the and the fifth? How in the world can you not know that you're talking to the fifth one? Like, she's obviously not in jail, and she's obviously still alive. She hasn't committed suicide. I mean, I'm going to say I can definitely see your point. I'm going to say that I think he was trying to be rhetorical a little bit. Like, oh, I see you here. No way. And the fifth, like, what about you? And she was just like, you know, became a cop. Detective. I think that you're giving you're giving the scene a little bit more credit than it deserves. I feel like. I mean, it's just, it's just uh, all right, let's move on. I, I disagree. I just think it's a, it's one of those things that's meant to be poignant, and it really just makes no sense. Well, I think he was trying to leave the door open for her to say, like, is depressed as hell. Like, he's trying <laughs> to get her to just define herself in some way. Um, so one thing I recognize during Annie's scenes... Um, so she starts looking, she starts delving into her sexual fantasies, whatever that is at night. Well, yeah. And I guess, I guess the, the, the question really quick going back to that is, is, is it a sexual fantasy? Cause she doesn't seem to be taking pleasure out of it. Sure. Like you said, it's sexual kind of like, perversion, whatever you want to per, call it. Well, well, yeah, it seems like, I don't even know if it's perversion, but it seems like she could be working something out like by acting this stuff out or by watching it. Well, it's like, yeah, you, you clearly get the feeling that she's repressing something, right? Like, right, right. It feels like she enjoys it, but she hates herself for enjoying it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that hasn't been defined yet. That's well, something that, that th- I'm it was defined in her very first scene when she's talking to her sister and Some, her sister is like, you're just accusing me of doing what you want to do or something like that. This is just like, yeah. yeah, exactly. No shit. Well, great. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess, I guess I'll, I want to see where that is culminating to. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. No. Is I, it somebody who's just like, this is? I'm just learning what I like. Right. Or is this like, I am messed up. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> going to be interesting to see where he takes this character, and that's what I'm saying. Like, there's going to be another Twitter meltdown. I would say regardless of what happens to this character, just because of people like to have meltdowns on Twitter and he's Pizzolatto is, you know, he's not writing the greatest female character of all time. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So I'm interested to see where it goes. Well, you know what? As you say that, it'll be interesting to go on like Pizzolatto watch uh, 2015 <laughs> where like Vince Gilligan, who is a great writer, ran into problems with Anna Gunn, right? Where people mm-hmm. were accusing him of basically writing right. a shrew. And there are far better writers of better series who have, you know, accidentally or for whatever reason, ended up in choppy waters. Nick Pizzolato, like you said, is not, you know, the second coming of uh, 
Cormac McCarthy here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it would be interesting in how he chooses to resolve Annie's story. Yeah, and that's it's interesting you bring that up because that's something I wanted to talk about. And this is more of a, I guess, this isn't about the show as much as it is about the meta of the show. And um, it'll be a good jumping off point for for Ray. But I did want to say quickly, all the characters at night, nighttime is when all the characters start indulging in their secrets that they don't want anybody to know about. Yeah, Andy with good. the pornography, Paul with his um, sexual identity, uh, Ray and Frank meet at night at the bar. Well, and, and, and Frank has his remembrances, right. you know, night, morning. So this idea that I never understood the argument that Anna Gunn in Breaking Bad, and the same thing can be said about, what's her name? Michelle from the first? Yeah. Whatever the actress's Monahan? name is. Monahan, right. Um, her or Ray's wife in this season. They all get labeled as shrews or nags or Scolds. just... Yeah, they're... But it's like, if you're Anna Gunn in Breaking Bad, and your husband is selling meth, smelling, selling meth and murdering people, <laughs> how do you not become a nag, right? Like, <laughs> right. you're either not condoning what he does, which is the right thing to do, and labeled a nag... Or you're saying, all right, that's fine, and going along with it, and by then becoming a accomplice to murder and a criminal yourself, right? It's like in season one of True Detective, everyone was down on Michelle Monaghan, or everyone was claiming Michelle Monaghan was written as some nag or this terribly weak female character when it's like her husband, Marty is a terrible person, right? Cheating on like, her. She should be getting on his case about these things. Yes. Why is that making her a terribly written f- person? Why does that make her a terrible character? Like, that's what she should be doing. And in the Vox article, in the Vox write-up, the guy says basically the same thing about Ray's wife, where it's like she shows up for one scene and she does her best with it, but she's really only there to be this nag to Ray or whatever. And it's like, Ray is a terrible person. <laughs> like she shouldn't be happy to see him. She shouldn't be like, Oh, you did all the, you uh, beat the crap out of this guy. Great. Good for you. Glad right. you did that. It's like, she should be upset about that. What do they expect? Like, how do you write that character and not make her a nag, but still keep her from condoning what he's done? You know what I mean? It's like, you can't have it both ways. I feel like, yeah, I I think the and I guess I can't say what they are arguing specifically, but you could just give her more scenes. Yeah, and I'm sure she'll be in it later on in the season. She's from Rectified. Did you? Oh, oh yeah, Samantha? I thought she looked familiar. I've only seen like the first season of Rectified though. Oh, okay. But she's in it. Yeah. I thought that's why she looked familiar though. Okay, so let's talk about Ray, who I think is probably the biggest character of this episode. Um, if not the rest of the show. Yeah, he's probably the focus, right? I would say. Well, without ends. I mean, come on. He's not dead. Okay, Everyone knows that. he is not dead. All right. We'll, we'll talk about it. 
Um, so I think for me, Ray is definitely the most watchable character. I don't think Colin Farrell's doing a very, I, I can't, I'm not sure if it's Colin Farrell's acting or if it's just as the writing, but something about his character is not great. It's obviously not Rust Cole level of great because mm-hmm. there's really not going to be very many things that touch that, but it's just, I feel like it's just not very good. But at the same time, he's the most dynamic character and he's the most, which I think in essence makes him the most interesting character because it's like Ray is trying to do what he thinks is right, but he's still doing a lot of bad things. And then you have Frank who's just a wiener the entire time, right? (laughs) You have Paul who's just a like fussy bratty baby the whole time. Like all the other characters are one note. And then you have Annie who the entire time is just brooding and hates the world. Like she's never, she hasn't gotten out of that attitude yet. Paul has never gotten beyond the attitude of being contemptuous of everybody, I guess, for not, I don't know, recognizing the traumas he suffered, even though he refuses to talk about them. Frank is being, is so far, all we've seen of Frank is weak-willed outside of his run-in with the bookie. So it's like, I feel like Ray's the most dynamic character so far, which makes him the most interesting character so far. But at the same time, he's still... Well, let's talk about his one-liners, right? So he has the, um, he has the, uh, Annie asks him, he's like, are you tight with that guy? And he just goes, I'm not tight with anybody, right? And he says it like he's like a 12-year-old being accused of still being a virgin, right? Where it's just like, you're not really sure what that means at 12. You just know that like, you don't want to be called that because people get made fun of. It's like, right? why would he be like, denying that he's friends with anybody <laughs> like that seems a little extreme like couldn't he just be like no i don't really know that guy mm-hmm. instead he just blows off everybody ever in the existence of the world he understands the genre he's living in <laughs> right it just seems like overkill a little bit you know what i mean um so at what point and for me this this has happened i've reached this point episode two did this to me the everything that was great about the writing of the first season, you can rack it all up to plagiarism. Without the plagiarism, you see that Nick Pizzolatto is not a very good writer. I would say just in even his um the the comeback stuff or the clever one-liners, or even the I would say the the MJ, you're the Michael Jordan of being a son of a bitch. Not a great line, not very clever, but you know why it seems so clever? Because it's following up this whole line, this whole paragraph of dialogue from Russ Cole that is actually very clever, that is actually very poignant, right? Mm -hmm. The unfortunate part is that that dialogue is more than likely lifted from something else. But now (laughs) that you don't have that, all this dialogue just looks weak to me, right? So I've reached that point. Have you reached that point? Do you what do you think of the di- like? Obviously, you liked his one liners. I I thought that there there was enough there to kind of hang my hat on. I don't the the ones that you're calling out. I do not. I okay. do not like. I agree. So the body image one liner that was good. Yeah, but I I didn't understand it. He mumbled it. I had no idea what he even said. Yeah, until my- I, all I heard was 
Um, I support feminism, but I haven't voted. And then you see Annie like completely emotionless. She just like doesn't even right. react she at was, all. She doesn't react. My 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 wife was like, "What? What do you say?" Right. And we just kind of kept breezing on. Okay. The I, robot dick one liner. <laughs> you like that? It's terrible. It's terrible. Okay, thank you. No, no, no. Okay. So look. which ones did you like? No, but but I'm saying there's enough that kind of passed by, right? None uh, of them that I was really like, oh, I'll write that one down. Right. Or I wonder what that's referencing. But enough to just kind of skate by. I feel like the one thing that I'll say is he's doing something different, obviously, in this season than he was in season one. Season one was more about these two guys playing off of each other, and you're dealing with two guys who have built-in chemistry. Woody Harrelson, Matthew McConaughey, they like each other outside of professionally. They wanted to work together. I think they're bringing their natural personalities to play a little bit Mm -hmm. and finding great ways to rub off on each other. This one, you just have three actors thrown in, given this dialogue being like, Go for it. I don't know that there is as drastic a difference between season one and season two that you're making out to be. Maybe maybe there is if we go down like dissect lines. Oh, I'll do it if you want to. But I'll do it to prove my point. But <laughs> <laughs> bonus episode. You know what we need to do? We need to do the, uh, remember in elementary school, they taught you how to what was it called? Like diagram a sentence where you like uh-huh. use that whole you have intricate to talk about the parts of the sentence, the, part, the parts of speech and all that. It looks like a spaceship. Like uh-huh. you're laying out the different lines. <laughs> That's what we need to do. Um, but, uh, but I, I don't take it as clearly as you do that. There is such a disparity between season one, and two with what they're doing. In season two, I can kind of chalk it up to the writing is what it is. The actors are who they are. And the whole impetus behind the season is just different, you know? And that's that's where you're getting this seemingly disparity between season one and two. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. And it could just be, you know, I'm sure some of it is just that I didn't like this episode. And so I'm looking for any possible way to pile onto it. Yeah. Because I really did not like the episode. Yeah, clearly. Um. So you wanted to speculate a little bit on what happened to Ray to make him become such a bad guy. <laughs> well, I guess, and, and I kind of... What pulled, was the turning? Because it's been referenced by a couple of characters yeah. that there was this turning point where he went from one thing to what he currently is now. Yeah, and I thought th- there's something that I'm reading into. I don't even know if it was there, but his ex-wife kind of made an allusion to the idea that he... Um, that he was, I felt like she was implying that he was always just playing a good guy. She was like, you know, I think you're able to pull it off for a while that you were just kind of playing a role, but then your bad side kind of came out. That was the idea that I got off of their discussion in the mall parking lot, which I thought was a weird place to have it to. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I guess I guess you know I kind of just we didn't even really talk about it. Just kind of wrote it on some notes. Um, I'm kind of pulling back off of that now because I guess I do want to watch a show where 
somebody murdering somebody else, no matter what they've done, will fundamentally change them as a person. Yeah. But I'm just, I guess I'm just jaded by all of our media today that I'm like, one murder makes this good guy turn into this. You know, I don't know that I, that, that I bought it at first. And also, he doesn't seem too tore up about it. Like, right. he's referencing it pretty openly to people, his ex-wife included, where he's like, you know, what I did, I did for you. And she's like, don't do that, you know? And it's like... Well, I mean, look, I, I have, I feel a few ways about that. I think, first of all, it, it, it can go... It, it's not just the murder, right? Which I think is, is more than enough to make one guy turn bad. Yeah. Quote, unquote, to put it very, like, comic booky. Yeah. But... It's 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 all the little things that lead up to that and then that, that then follow after that. So it's like not only is he doing that, but then afterwards he then becomes basically a, a dirty cop. Right. Because he's now taking money from this gangster to do all these other things. So I'm sure it wasn't uh, I'm sure it's not a matter of killed this guy. Now I'm the ultimate evil. It was just sort of like the beginning of his downward spiral, more or less. Um, but with that being said him not feeling that bad about it makes total sense to me. Like if somebody did something so horrible, horrible to my family that I wanted to kill them, I don't imagine I would feel that bad no, after no, killing them. That, that, that's exactly it. And so I was kind of like, and knowing Nick Pizzolato, I was like, are we going to get a flashback scene where the first call that, you know, Frank has is like, um, we got all these stray cats. They had a bunch of kittens. They're keeping me up at night. I need you to kill them all with a hammer, <laughs> you know, and just go slaughter about a hundred kittens. Yeah. And that's what we end up seeing is like Ray out there and <laughs> just hammering, away. hammering away. And Frank is like, keep going, you know, yeah. and that's what broke him. Yeah, I, I just feel like with Pizzolatto, I'm wondering: is are we going to get like well, it's, a further? And it's, it's been an, that that idea is antithetical to what the show has been so far. Where where it just is like we're going to start at dark, and we're going to keep going darker and darker and darker until we reach like the point where the light nadir. literally does not exist. The nadir of darkness, right? right? This is <clears throat> so. Uh, let's see. We talked about the nagging thing. Oh, I thought it was weird. The last thing I want to say about Ray before we talk about the ending. Did you notice when he starts talking to the waitress at the bar, all of a sudden he turns into like a Southern gentleman <laughs> and he starts saying, ma'am, and he calls her darling. It just was really weird. Um, okay. So the, sh- the show, the episode ends with Ray investigating Casper's, hidden sex den that nobody knew about. He opens the door to see something being recorded or a recording system running, which I think is an interesting, could be an interesting nod to the previous season. Mm -hmm. A little bit of connection there. True. Um, And then he gets shot in the stomach by a raven headed assailant. And who's either wield who's wielding a shotgun that more than likely has like rock salt in it or something. Like there's no way this is what I'll say. At no point did you think he was dead? No. 
if I would have liked the episode, maybe because him being dead would be an actually interesting development in the story. It would be a, a, a huge turn, a huge swing that I wouldn't expect from what I've gotten so far in the series. Um, but just the way the show has been advertised and built up, I just don't see that happening. And not only that, so we watched the show a little bit late because it comes on at nine and the girls go to bed at nine. Sometimes they they stay up a little bit later. So we started the show like 30 minutes later. So as soon as it ended at 1030 for us, I went on Reddit to see what people were saying in the post show thread and people were already posting all the screen caps from scenes in the show that Colin Farrell's in that haven't been shown yet. They're in like the trailers or like the promotional material, stuff like that. And just as like, yeah, he's obviously not dead. Well, I feel like, um, I don't know. I feel like my, my argument for him not being dead doesn't even go to those promotional materials. It kind of stays at the fact that this is an eight episode season. Mm-hmm. This doesn't seem like, a season that sets itself up for developments like that because you've just wasted two episodes right. on a character. Right. So right. It, to me, it seems like the, the structure of this season is such like game game of Thrones can do it because they're pushing on season six, you know? Um, and so you have, you've had time with those characters. We've had 50 episodes, you know, to have the rug pulled out from us in different ways. And on true detective, you have, eight episodes or what you're going to pull the rug out and waste, you know, two hours of footage on like, ha, right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Right. Like it just doesn't seem like it's set up to support that. And that's what I was going to say. How would, how would you feel? How would the audience feel if that was just the end of Colin Farrell's story? Like there's so many things that aren't addressed or that were just brought up. And I guess you could also say that that's, you know, that's kind of how murder kind of works, yeah. right? But, you know, we're talking about a TV show, right? <laughs> it's like, you're not going to introduce all those things and then just kill this guy. And you know what I mean? It just is like, it doesn't work that way. Now, now, when you see him alive next episode, are you going to have an uncontrollable eye roll? Like, is there any way no, I that, expect him to be alive. Is there, so, so you know, you're not worried about them bringing him back in a way that feels even more like obvious. Do So, I mean, do you think they can pull this off and have it be like, Oh yeah, that was nicely done. He's in a coma. He's really bruised with all the rock salt or whatever. Yeah. He's just bruised. I mean, there's literally a screenshot on Reddit of Colin Farrell leaning against the truck with bandages all around his stomach. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't see that. Yes. It's just like, okay. (laughs) I wonder how the general, I talked to a friend of mine today. He said it never occurred to him that that um that he was alive. No, no, I wouldn't expect it to. For the for the audience, and that's exactly what that's exactly what I see this as. Imagine the viewer numbers for episode three if that final scene was not in the show. If it just ended with Colin Farrell in that house. He never gets shot. There's never a second person. It just ends with him in the it house. It would only be people recording podcasts about right. the show. Exactly. Exactly. You would get, it would be, the diminishing returns on that third episode would be immense. So they're ending it with this huge 
now everyone who saw that has got to see what happens next. And I would say the majority of people aren't going to expect him to still be alive. Not for not to their fault or anything, just because, you know, I wouldn't either if I wasn't if I was your typical HBO viewer who doesn't listen to podcasts, who doesn't go to the subreddit, who's just watching this on a week to week basis. I probably wouldn't expect him to be alive either. Yeah, I just wonder. And I guess what I was asking before is like, so you don't care whether it's. I had a flap jacket on or whether, did I say flap? (laughs) Flack, (laughs) flack jacket on or whether it's, I got hit with rock salt and it hurts. Well, he's not wearing a bulletproof vest. 100%. I didn't see, I mean, I watched the episode a second time. I was looking for it a second time. He just has a wife beater on underneath it. Or rubber bullets. Yeah. Not sure which. So you don't care. Any one of those is as good as the other one. I mean, no, I don't care in one sense, just because at this point, there's nothing the show can do to disappoint me mm-hmm. more. Right. Like there's nothing like like they, they could be like, yeah, he just had feathers in that shotgun. And you know what I mean? We, we are also getting like this is going to contribute to the to our culture needing to in, in any shows following if they want to kill a character off. We're going to literally be watching people like shoot somebody, saw their head off, (laughs) hold it up to the camera, scream as they like punt it out of the frame. And only then will people be like, oh, wow, I think they're dead. Yeah. Yeah. The only way I would be disappointed next episode is if I truly thought that he was dead. Because I think that that's the only interesting angle to that scene. All right, so we're going to um, wrap the show up quickly with some of our general observations about the episode. Uh, I talked a little bit about how I feel like everything in this episode and in this series now is just, it's an answer to all of his critics, and I'm standing by that. And I feel like going forward, you can you will be able to predict the plot developments and the character motivations all based on what is going to answer, what is going to be a, a bigger answer to his critics from Pizzolatto's view. A cynical way to look at the show, but until I'm proven wrong, I'm going <laughs> to stick to it. That was my theory for the first episode. I feel like it's been giving concrete evidence in the second episode, so I'm sticking to it. Um, uh, what do you feel about the, how do you feel about the investigation aspects of the show so far because that was criticized a little bit in the first season. Yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say I I actually like I liked the scene where you had each of them getting their orders from their respective mm-hmm. units. Like I liked that insight where you basically, you know, and um basically Ray is like you guys don't want me to solve this, do you? You know. Yeah. But you have the so you see what where each of them is coming from. And some of the interests from their various um, departments, I actually thought that was really interesting, and was wondering why I hadn't seen that before. You know, utilized mm-hmm. in cop dramas or pulp kind of stories. So, so I liked I like that. And you know, in terms of the investigation, um, <clears throat> I think there's a lot more going on. 
obviously, mm-hmm. and there's a lot more mystery around the the murder. Um, so I'm I'm intrigued. I I think I think as a mystery, I think the mystery is is pretty solid. Yeah. Uh, this is the question I had. Is it possible for a television series to be more pretentious than season one of True Detective? Because season two is really giving it a run for its money. And I loved season one, but it is very brooding. It is very pretentious. Not necessarily in a bad way, but it Mm -hmm. is pretentious. It is concerned with, you know, very high-level thought ideas, basically. And I feel like what makes season two worse is that it's still trying to be that way and it's failing miserably at it. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think the Vox article that, that you referenced earlier too, kind of brought it up where they were like, people say he's pretentious and he is, that's how he writes, you know? And I think he was saying that he doesn't think Nick Pizzolatto could write any differently than, Pretentiously. Yeah. And I agree with that. And this is the writer that he is. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to hold it against him that he's shooting high and missing because that's the writer he is. And it got him so far two season deal with HBO. Yeah. Um, so I've answered this question by saying that I think Nick Pizzolatto's modus operandi is to silence his critics. How do you feel about all of the supernatural slash weirdo imagery in, it's not throughout the show as much as it's contained to this city manager's, it's contained to the city manager. mm -hmm. It's in his house. It's in his sex den. The guy that shoots Ray is wearing a weird Raven's head mask that is also in the car as Casper's being. And can I say quickly, you've been want you've seen the like uh, last time on True Detective things that air before the show. Why are they always inserting that stupid scene where you see the Casper's dead body in the back of the car and then it hits a bump and he just is like <laughs> leans against it's so stupid looking, it's so portentous. <laughs> Um, do you think that all of that imagery has any meaning at all? Or do you think that that is Pizzolatto just being like, you guys wanted to read into all this stuff in season one. Here you go. Good luck. I, you know, going, going off of your, your basic approach to the show, I would kind of turn it a little differently and say, this isn't just Pizzolatto answering his critics because there's a lot written about the tension on set between he and uh, Carrie Fukunaga. Right. And I wonder, I'm wondering if part of this is him saying, Hey guys, this is what I would have done with the occult imagery. And if one of the issues may have been, and, and again, this is all speculation, but was Fukunaga more interested in that kind of set decoration that we talked about where there are so many references to the swirls or whatever in all these images that were confusing ultimately. And Nick Pizzolatto has really simplified the images. I've started this season really looking at the corners of screens being like, 
I'm going to try and pick up on it. Mm-hmm. You know what's going on. And so far I found, you know, a picture of Barack Obama and George Bush, like in the <laughs> background, like, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's it. Right. So I, I'm wondering if Pizzolatto isn't just answering critics, but he's also trying to clarify the record and saying, look, see no visual clutter, right? Mm-hmm. I am still referencing the occult, but I'm not putting the symbolism everywhere. Because that's not what I intended. That's what mm. the previous director wanted. And and I felt like it distracted from the story, which Pizzolau seems like he's all about, right? Yeah. The story. Yeah. Uh speaking of George Bush, he appears in the photo in a photo where the uh Vinci police chief is shaking his hand. What did you think of the police chief? Did you like him or did you feel like he was overacting? He felt like he could, he he felt like he or was did in you who like framed, his overacting who framed Roger Rabbit like <laughs> yeah. I, he was like <laughs> yeah. a villain who framed Roger Rabbit right. kind of. yeah I I compared him in our notes I compared him to the girl on Other Space oh yeah right where she's doing the, the brooding scout. like yeah like he it uh, it seems like he's trying to melt into it. like it looks like he's oh, yeah. trying to shove his chin so far into his chest cavity as to just like collapse in on himself. It's some a lot of people on Reddit liked it, but not for me. Um, okay, final thought. You you wanted to say something about getting the entertainment we deserve, and and why does so why are so many of these shows obsessed with miserableism? Miserableism. Yeah. Why, what's the deal with miserableism? Like why why is everything just like the meanest it can possibly be the all leftovers the time. game of thrones true detective game of thrones and just george rr R. well the game of thrones yeah yeah i haven't read any of his other stuff so i don't know and um you know, even even hannibal which i've i watch hannibal i know you you don't no but there, there does seem to be a just reveling in miserableness I think Hannibal is the weakest example out of all those. I just kind of threw that in randomly um, because I think that has a beauty to it and a cinematic quality, but it is really just difficult watching, you know? And, um, but Game of Thrones leftovers are, I think are better examples that go along with true detective and also are all on HBO. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you know, Colin Farrell or Ray's like, we get the world we deserve. You know, I'm like, do we get the entertainment we deserve? Because we, in some ways, crave or desire this misery, you know? Um, and why is misery becoming the language of our entertainment now? You know? Because True Detective is nothing if not miserable. Yeah. You know? And it's some of the humor is being taken away a little more and more. You know, in some of the there, there is there are still references. Like I like that side note that the that the detective had where he's like um, Annie and uh, I don't I don't think um, Ray's with her, but they walk in and he just randomly he's like, uh, oh, what, what's Taylor Kitsch's character again? Paul. It's getting late. Paul. He's like, uh, Paul is a great anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, Paul, you want to tell him about the, your bank encounter? You know, <laughs> I, I thought it was like, there, there's still moments, like little moments in yeah. there. But yeah, this show is miserable. And yeah. I'm like, what, what, what do you think 
that says like do we get the entertainment we deserve in all this misery is this just a fad or is this opening up a whole new era of misery what different oh the killing that was the other one season one Mm -hmm. of the killing which is all about grief and just like misery in grief is is terrible yeah to me it just is a lazy way to be or it's just as a lazy way to seem more meaningful than what you actually are yeah it's just to seem deep and that's a cynical way to look at it of course and if it if done right it can be great like the first season was very miserable but it was great and it was poignant and it also had moments of humor um that's not to say i want the exact same thing i just don't want eight hours of misery right which is what this season is building up to be at this point and coming off of game of thrones which i feel like this last season of game of thrones was especially big on misery it is a little i feel a little worn out i feel like it would almost be the basis of an onion article to compile some of the images that we've gotten yeah just out of leftovers true detective game of thrones and then just you know impartially depict them in writing you know uh, looking back on the last, you know, five years of great images in, in TV, mm-hmm. and it would be like, we saw a girl with antlers shoved in her head and <laughs> right. stripped naked and tied yeah. to a tree. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like, it's and it's just one after the other after the other um, of just scene after scene after scene of just like what other miserable situation of just people hating themselves can we put them in now? Yeah. Okay. Well, that was the show. Um if you have any questions or comments, feel free to visit the website at eipodcast.com. If you made it this far in the episode while still hating everything I said <laughs> and wondering why I do a podcast on True Detective and just wanting to chew me out about it, my email will be in the show notes as well. It's also on the website eipodcast.com. Um, and if you want to submit your own too gratuitous not gratuitous yeah, enough perfect or just right submission send it in yeah email we us can all weigh in leave a comment yeah um or you can just shoot it to us on twitter right um so that, that's it do you want to give your twitter handle oh yeah i am at blizzard with nine z's if you can make it this far you can make it through nine z's <laughs> you can push that Z nine times. I am at things come right. Yeah. So like I said, thanks for listening and we will be back next week after the third episode of True Detective.